This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. I'm Kurt Card, analyst with the Rand Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's Rand briefing on congressional options and their likely consequences for a nuclear deal with Iran. A deal on Iran's nuclear program is one of the most significant international policy issues before Congress and the White House today. While much of the discussion around the deal has focused on negotiations, RAND researchers have already thought ahead about the implications and potential agreement and developed a line of research that looks at what happens assuming a deal is in place. RAND's Days After a Deal with Iran series is a collection of briefings, papers, and conferences on U.S.-Iran relations, which examines the effects that a nuclear agreement would have around the Middle East. Previous research in the series has looked at U.S. policies of hedging and engaging, continuity and change in Iranian foreign policy, and regional responses to a final nuclear agreement. It is important to note that today's briefing assumes a scenario where a deal has already been reached. Once a deal is reached, what is Congress's role? Congressional action can either help or hinder implementation of whatever deal may be reached. What options are available to Congress and what are the likely consequences of each for the United States? Larry will identify and assess eight potential courses of action that Congress could take that might either facilitate, hinder, or block implementation of a nuclear deal and talk about their impacts and influencing factors. Now, I'll talk a little bit about Larry before I turn it over to him. Larry Hanauer is a senior policy analyst at RAND, where his research focuses on national security issues, particularly in the Middle East and Africa. Before coming to RAND, he spent five years on the House Intelligence Committee, where he served as staff director on the subcommittee on terrorism, human intelligence, analysis, and counterintelligence. Larry also spent eight years in the office of the Secretary of Defense, where, among other things, he managed U.S. defense policy regarding Israel, Iraq, and Iran. Today's briefing builds on Larry's extensive experience in both Congress and the executive branch, as, it, as well as his insights into the Middle East security challenges. I'll turn it over to Larry now. Right. Thank you, Kurt, for that introduction. Again, uh, I'm Larry Hanauer. I'm happy to be here today. Uh, can everyone hear me uh, in the back of the room? Good. Okay. Um, so, as uh, as Kurt noted, uh, the nuclear issue is is one of the foremost foreign policy, national security issues that we face today. And those of you who are uh, working in Congress and in other organizations uh, examining these issues know that very well. But. Most people are focused on the day-to-day -day negotiations that are still ongoing and trying to understand what negotiating positions might be and what the result of the negotiations might be um, and trying to understand and handicap the kind of deal that might result. So what Rand has done uh, with this research and others that Kurt outlined uh, is try to understand what the days after a deal might look like. So uh, with this research, we have assumed that a deal has already been negotiated and reached and that sanctions relief is a key element of it. So we don't need to go into the details of what that might look like, but just simply that sanctions relief is going to be a major element of whatever deal has been struck. Um, we hope that, uh, that this takes uh, sort of a broad strategic look at the different options that Congress might take and what the impact, the, uh, the, the primary and secondary impacts of those actions might be. Um, we're not addressing how congressional actions can influence the negotiations themselves, because again, we're assuming the negotiations have ended and produced a deal, uh, and we're not going to go into the individual sanctions that, uh, that might be changed. So with that as a little bit of background, just a few key points about what we've, what we've concluded. So again, after a nuclear deal has been reached, um, 
the president has uh, extraordinary authority under existing legal authorities to provide sanctions relief without any further congressional approval. Uh, most of the statutory sanctions that are in place provide for waiver authorities or for the, allow the president to uh, make exemptions to sanctions, temporarily suspend sanctions. Many of the sanctions, of course, have been imposed by executive order, which the president can undo. So, so after a deal is reached, the president will still have authority to, uh, to provide a great deal of sanctions relief, whether Congress does anything further or not. Now, that said, Congress has a range of options available to it, and we'll go through what we sort of call a spectrum of eight uh, options that Congress can take that could have the effect of either facilitating a deal as it's been negotiated, uh, constraining the administration's freedom of action to implement the deal, or even blocking the implementation of a deal. Now, we're not taking a position as to whether a deal that provides sanctions relief and other measures is a good thing and should be facilitated or a bad thing that should be blocked. Uh, that's for you and your bosses to determine. But we're just looking through what those options are and what the, what the impact of various congressional uh, actions might be. Third, uh, at the end, we'll talk about what, uh, which of these sort of eight actions on the spectrum are most likely, uh, and the ones that we assess are most likely will still enable the White House to provide some measure of sanctions relief under its own authority. So although Congress could take steps, for example, to block a deal, we end up assessing that that's not quite as likely. And the, the outcomes that are most likely politically feasible uh, and practical are, are the ones that still will enable the White House to execute a significant degree of sanctions relief. So just briefly, uh, this is the structure of the briefing. Um, we'll talk very briefly about how sanctions can be uh, modified, how relief can be implemented, just so we understand what those procedures are. Then we'll go through the spectrum of actions that Congress can take, and then we'll wrap up uh, very briefly with just an assessment of which of the actions are most likely. So uh, how sanctions relief can be implemented? Well, of course, any sanctions that are imposed by statute will require statutory action to, to change them. So any, anything passed into law by Congress will require a law to modify. Um, the exception to that in this particular case is the Iran Sanctions Act, the ISA, which contains most of the uh, extraterritorial, excuse me, extraterritorial sanctions uh, that prohibit non-American companies from investing in Iran's energy sector and other sectors. The reason for that is because the ISA sunsets in December 2016. So if Congress doesn't take action to renew that law, then the sanctions provisions in it will expire in December 2016. Uh, and uh, non-American companies will be free to invest in, in a wide range of sectors in Iran, including the, particularly the energy sector. Uh, so again, so aside from the statutory uh, relief uh, uh, mechanisms, the president, as I said, has extensive authority to give sanctions relief on his own. Um, the, the easiest way to unapply sanctions is through a presidential waiver. Uh, almost all of the sanctions provisions in law provide for uh, a presidential waiver. Typically, the president has to determine that issuing a waiver is in the national interest or national security interest. It's a very broad standard that is essentially up to the executive branch to, uh, to define. Uh, the sanctions are typically time limited to three or four months, sometimes six months, um, but they're almost always renewable. So in theory, the president could issue a waiver uh, and then renew it over and over again. Uh, and in fact, to implement the joint plan of action, which is the the, the interim sort of agreement that's, that's in place while negotiations continue, the president waived a number of sanctions to provide Iran with some temporary relief and access to frozen funding, um, uh, the ability to sell some of its oil and that sort of thing. Um, the, uh, the president can also reverse sanctions that were imposed by executive order simply by issuing a new executive order that, that, that modifies it or undoes it. Um, so that's uh, simply under presidential authority. Um, and uh, some of the legislation also enables the president to exempt entities from sanctions. So for example, the 2012 Defense Authorization Act 
uh, enables the president to exempt banks from the, the financial sanctions if their host governments have taken steps to reduce their imports uh, of Iranian oil. So that's, that enables the executive branch to exempt those entities from sanctions uh, temporarily. Uh, and then finally, uh, the administration simply has some discretion as to how to apply the sanctions. For example, many of the, the laws say that uh, you know, the president or the executive branch shall investigate a potential violation, and if it's found, if a, an entity has found to violate the law, then apply some menu of sanctions. Well, the executive branch has some dis degree of discretion as to whether and how to uh, engage in those investigations, uh, whether to conclude that some entity has in fact violated the law, and then how to apply penalties. So there is some degree of discretion that the administration can, uh, can uh, engage in in order to determine whether to apply sanctions to a particular entity. So, uh, so all told, that gives the executive branch a significant degree of flexibility to provide sanctions relief, even if no additional legislation is passed. So now we'll go into the second section. We'll start going through some of the options uh, that Congress uh, has available to it. So we've identified a spectrum of eight, sort of eight plus a, a ninth option that Congress could take. And we've uh, sort of color-coded these and numbered in, in sort of rough uh, order of whether they facilitate the implementation of an agreement that the executive branch has reached. That's the, the green ones, the first three. Um, and then in the middle, a handful where congressional action would uh, to some degree constrain what the executive branch could do to implement an agreement, and then toward the end, the ones in red, steps where con uh, congressional action could in many ways block the execution of agreement. Um, we've also put as sort of a ninth option uh, the notion that Congress could authorize the use of military force uh, in essence, to punish Iran for noncompliance, although it could authorize it for other reasons as well. Um, and we've, we put it separately because one could argue that actually authorizing use of force could facilitate implementation of a deal because it would make to clear to Iran the costs of noncompliance, and so it would encourage Iran to follow through. One could also argue that authorizing the use of military force would make the United States appear belligerent uh, and drive Iran away from the deal and make it look as if the United States sort of blew the deal up. So without arguing whether authorizing use of force is, is uh, conducive to implementing the deal or, or would hinder the implementation of the deal, we put it out there as an option and we'll talk about some of the, some of the pros and cons of, of Congress pursuing that. So let's go to the first uh, option the one that essentially would be uh, most conducive to implementing a deal that the, that the administration uh, negotiates. Um, and that's uh, lifting sanctions by statute. So one step that Congress could take, of course, is to simply allow the Iran Sanctions Act to expire without renewing its provisions. Uh, and that would enable uh, many companies, again, to invest in Iran's energy sector and some other critical sectors. Um, it could also lift any and all uh, statutory sanctions. But if it were to do so, uh, I mean, there's very little support in Congress for doing this. Um, but if it were to do so, any statutory relief would almost certainly be done over time, gradually, uh, and in response to verified Iranian compliance with the agreement. So Congress isn't simply going to lift the sanctions as sort of a deliverable right off the bat, but hold it out there as a carrot that, you know, over time, if Iran implements the agreement um, uh, as, it, as it has promised, then uh, perhaps Congress might slowly, gradually, over time, uh, provide some statutory sanctions relief. Now, that said, if, it does, if Congress does even that, um, there's some merit to having what we call snapback provisions. And that's, let me talk a little bit about snapback sanctions because we'll talk about that later uh, when we talk about the potential to impose new sanctions. Um, snapback sanctions would essentially be uh, legislation or perhaps an executive order that says sanctions could be waived or, or temporarily suspended, but will, sn will snap back into place if Iran violates the agreement or takes certain steps that are deemed to violate the agreement. The advantage of that is that 
Congress could, for example, in this scenario, lift sanctions, but say, if Iran reneges, sanctions will go back into place. And what that does is it enables the United States to uh, to sort of force Iran's hand and give it give it an incentive, a concrete incentive, uh, to comply with the agreement. Um, it also puts the blame for any sanctions that do get reimposed on Iran, because instead of making it seem as if the United States is unilaterally imposing sanctions to squeeze Iran further, the U.S. can say, well, actually, it's Iran's behavior, its failure to implement the agreement or its violation of the agreement that triggered those sanctions. So that would enable the United States to keep pressure on Iran, um, maintain some support in, internationally for the sanctions regime, uh, and keep the U.S. from being isolated, because, again, responsibility for those sanctions would be uh, put on Iran. So the, um, the impact of, of some sort of statutory sanctions relief would significantly uh, facilitate the implementation of the deal by the executive branch, um, because one can assume that much of what the administration will agree to provide in, uh, in a deal would be stuff that it could provide on its own authority anyway. So if Congress doesn't put any new restrictions on that, then presumably the executive branch can go ahead and provide the sanctions relief it agrees to, um, even if statutory relief includes some sort of snapback provisions, uh, because again, those wouldn't snap back until and unless Iran reneged on the agreement. Some of the things, though, that might influence whether Congress uh, were to pursue this course of action is that, at least as of now, there really aren't very many advocates for providing statutory relief, um, primarily because members of Congress, as well as many others, are suspicious of Iran's uh, intentions, um, certainly are suspicious that even if Iran uh, agrees to something, that it's not really going to follow through, that it might have a covert nuclear program. Uh, and so they're going to be reluctant to provide statutory relief until there's a significant, until Iran has a significant track record of compliance with what it's committed to. So Congress would want to see that most, almost certainly before any sort of statutory relief was put into place. So the next option along the spectrum is uh, essentially taking a proactive, uh, supportive stance of the executive branch's implementation. Um, so this could take the form, for example, of a joint resolution of approval where the two houses, the two chambers, uh, vote to endorse the agreement um, uh, or uh, uh, pass a sense of Congress resolution, which, although non-binding, would send a very clear signal to Iran, to the Europeans, uh, to businesses that are contemplating investing in Iran, that Congress endorses a nuclear agreement, uh, endorses the concept of sanctions relief, uh, and it would be a signal that companies can go in and invest um, uh, without necessarily seeing the, that window for investment close on them in, short, in a short degree of time. Um, that's important because, uh, again, one of the main things that Iran wants out of these negotiations is sanctions relief and access to the uh, international banking system and the ability to uh, export its oil. So it needs, it needs companies to invest and it needs companies to engage their financial sector. And if it doesn't see those benefits, then Iran is going to be increasingly tempted over time to, to walk away. So, uh, so steps that give that kind of... Um, that positive signal to companies that it's, that it's a sound business decision to invest uh, will be important for the long-term implementation of the deal. Um, Congress could also authorize funds specifically for uh, the implementation of the agreement. So, for example, instead of simply authorizing or appropriating funds for the Treasury Department to, uh, to do its work, Congress could specifically authorize or appropriate funds uh, for the revision of regulations uh, needed to implement sanctions reform. Uh, so that, that also would send a signal that Congress is supportive of the sanctions relief. Um, it could also tie those appropriations um, to, uh, to closer oversight. So, for example, re requiring the administration to report regularly on 
the implementation of the deal and on Iranian compliance. Um, and finally, uh, Congress could also pass laws uh, that expand the president's ability to issue waivers, either by uh, enlarging the range of topics that qualify for a waiver, perhaps enabling the president to issue a waiver for a longer period of time, instead of three or four months, maybe a year. Um, so those are things that Congress could do that would give the, the administration uh, more flexibility. Um, now, the impact of this, um, again, you, just like with the first option, it would enable the administration to, to, to implement the agreement that it signed. Uh, it would demonstrate Congress's support. It would encourage private investment. Um, it wouldn't, wouldn't uh, create any further restrictions on what the administration could do. So presumably this would allow the administration to execute the agreement. Some of the things, though, that, that Congress would consider before, before taking these steps, of course, is that Again, just as in the previous option, Congress is broadly suspicious of Iran's intentions uh, and in all likelihood would want to see a track record of Iranian compliance before it took proactive steps specifically to implement the, uh, the agreement. The third action uh, is simply no legislative action at all. Um, it's possible that Congress might be unable to pass a bill. Uh, or it might be able to pass a bill, but uh, would not be able to pass it with a veto-proof majority. And I think it's a fair assumption that if Congress takes um, passes some legislation that significantly constrains the executive branch's ability to impl implement an agreement, that the president might very well veto that legislation. So any legislation that constrains what the executive branch can do would probably have to be passed with a veto-proof majority, and it's not clear that that exists in both chambers. Um, Congress could, of course, choose to exercise aggressive oversight through hearings and briefings. Um, without necessarily intending to pass legislation that affects the implementation of the uh, agreement. Um, and given that this is a presidential election campaign coming up, it's entirely possible that, that members of Congress would uh, seek through floor speeches or hearings uh, or even legislation to simply stake out markers and, and stake out uh, policy positions without necessarily intending to pass uh, anything into law. Now, the impact of, of no legislative action at all um, it would be that the Iran Sanctions Act would sunset in 2016, um, so, uh, so foreign companies would be free to invest um, in, uh, in Iran's energy sector and, and other uh, elements of the economy. Um, but that said, if, if companies think that Congress may, may still impose sanctions later on, it's entirely possible that they may hesitate before making long-term investments. Um, so, so companies might very well start to invest, start to do a little bit more because there's a window for them to do so, but may not make the long-term capital investments until they have some greater confidence that Congress isn't going to close that window on them. Some of the factors that might influence Congress's decisions uh, are that there's a significant divisions not only between the two parties but within the parties about what the right course of action to do uh, on an Iran nuclear deal is. So it may simply be difficult for Congress to, to come to some consensus and pass legislation at all. Um, and then, of course, the fact that we're entering a campaign season may make it harder for members to take some of the centrist positions that might be necessary to actually reach a, a consensus and, uh, and pass legislation. Um, that said, uh, you know, the, the idea of passing, taking no legislative action at all is, is a fairly likely outcome, we think, because the, the you know, inertia is a powerful force. So now we'll get into some of the options where Congress could uh, have an increasing role in restraining the administration's freedom of action in implementing an agreement. So one thing Congress could do for, is to limit the administration's ability, limit the president's ability to issue waivers. Um, Congress could either restrict waiver authority or even revoke it, and some legislation has been introduced in the 113th Congress uh, to do just that. Um, Congress could also require that the president certify 
before issuing a waiver that certain requirements of uh, certain events have taken place that are simply impossible to certify. Uh, for example, a, a, a bill introduced by Senator Kirk uh, would prevent a waiver uh, unless the president can certify that whatever funds are provided to Iran would not be used to support terrorism, uh, develop uh, missiles or WMD. Uh, or support human rights abuses. Well, that's a pretty high standard. It might be very difficult to certify that, so that might hinder the issuance of a waiver uh, if that requirement was imposed. Um, other legislation uh, has actually been introduced that would deny the White House the ability to decide as a policy matter whether a, whether sanctions relief is merited. Um, there's a, a bill introduced by Senator Corker that would snap back any sanctions that had been waived if the intelligence community decides or determines that Iran has reneged on an agreement. Um, and what that does is it takes away from the administration the ability to decide as a policy matter that relief is merited and puts that decision instead in the hands of the intelligence community, which presumably is more objective or more factor analysis based and less influenced by politics. Um, so, uh, so Congress could make this process a little bit more difficult for the president to justify uh, issuing waivers. And then, of course, Congress could require frequent reports on Iranian compliance uh, before issuing waivers, which would require the administration to be much more transparent about what's taking place and what it intends to do. Um, the impact would be mixed. Um, this could create the impression that Congress favors sort of a permanent sanctions regime and generate some um, opposition internationally. Um, but that said, you know, the, the president would retain many of the waiver authorities available to him. And even though the con the, this kind of congressional action might limit what kind of relief he could offer, he would still have extensive authority to issue waivers. Um, and uh, But the transparency required by uh, additional reporting requirements could raise the bar for what the administration uh, wants to raise the bar for the administration's decisions to issue a waiver by making the administration publicly justify um, the, the steps Iran has taken that, that merit it. Um, among the factors that would influence con Congress's decision to take this kind of action is that, um, frankly, it doesn't really satisfy anyone. Uh, because it would still enable the White House to offer sanctions relief, it wouldn't really satisfy critics of the deal. Um, but because it restrains the White House's ability to issue sanctions relief, provide sanctions relief, it's not going to uh, please supporters of the deal either. So, so this is going to leave sort of no one satisfied. Um, now, there are two options we talk about where Congress could reinstate or pass new sanctions. Um, for example, Congress could, uh, legislation's already been introduced that would reinstate some of the sanctions that the president's waived. Um, now, this could have a, a very mixed impact. The unilateral imposition of new sanctions, whether they're reinstated or, or new ones from, uh, from scratch, um, would be seen by many, by Iran, but also by some of our European allies, as uh, essentially a unilateral abrogation of the deal by the United States. Uh, and that could have potentially significant consequences. It might drive Iran back to high-level enrichment, because Iran might say, hey, you're, you're not really serious about providing sanctions relief, so you know, we're not going to provide our end of the deal either. Um, it could cause European allies and others uh, to um, limit their support for the sanctions regime because they might be frustrated that the United States, after going through this whole diplomatic process, is simply going to reimpose uh, sanctions. Um, and, uh, and that could leave the United States uh, somewhat isolated um, and undermine the sanctions regime. So there are potentially negative consequences for, re for reintroducing sanctions without a provocation from Iran. Now that said, if Congress were to reinstitute uh, sanctions with a snapback provision that could, as I said earlier, put the blame for any new sanctions that are introduced 
onto Iran for its own non-compliance. Um, so, uh, so if Congress were to reinstate or even pass new sanctions, uh, including some sort of snapback provisions that, that cause them to kick in when, if and when Iran reneges, would probably avoid much of the international condemnation that could run counter to U.S. interests. Um, and uh, as I noted there, any sanctions at all could cause uh, businesses to hesitate before they reinvest, which also, as I said, could uh, prevent Iran from seeing the economic benefits of a deal uh, in a timely fashion. Um, so uh, the things that Congress wants to consider uh, are, again, that unprovoked sanctions, unilateral sanctions, could have a significantly negative impact on our relations with Europe, on the um, unity of the sanctions regime, and on Iran's willingness to continue its end of the bargain, whereas sanctions that are imposed with a snapback provision uh, could prevent some of those uh, negative effects. So similar on the spectrum, Congress could simply pass new statutory sanctions. It could extend the Iran Sanctions Act, which would keep the energy sanctions in place. Uh, it could impose brand new statutory sanctions, and there are a number of bills that have been introduced in the 113th Congress that would do this. The most notable one is the Menendez-Kirk legislation in the Senate with 59 <coughs> co-sponsors that would impose new sanctions on uh, construction, engineering, energy, shipping, and a number of other sectors. Um, and, uh, and Congress could, of course, impose new sanctions with snapback provisions. Um, so the impact here would be similarly mixed. You know, any unilateral sanctions could have this, this range of consequences that we talked about before, but snapback provisions could help encourage Iranian compliance while deflecting blame that it was the U.S. that blew up a deal uh, if sanctions are reimposed. Um, and the, the factors con Congress would want to uh, consider are basically the same, the, the, negative, the, the uh, impact of uh, unilateral sanctions and the potential reinforcing uh, mechanism uh, of the snapback sanctions. So then we've got two uh, options where Congress could increasingly work to, to block implementation of the agreement. And perhaps the clearest way of doing that is simply to use its power of the purse and prevent the use of funds for the execution of the agreement. Um, it could, for example, prohibit Treasury from using any of its, uh, its funds to revise regulations needed to implement sanctions reform or prevent the State Department or the Energy Department from sending inspectors in nuclear uh, verification missions. Now, the White House could get around some of these restrictions. I mean, the, 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 perhaps the IAEA could, do, uh, could, could conduct nuclear verification inspections without U.S. inspectors and therefore without requiring U.S. funds. But this would uh, have the effect of hindering quite significantly the ability of the government to provide sanctions relief. If the Treasury Department, for example, couldn't revise its regulations, then companies wouldn't know what's legal, what's permitted, uh, and they wouldn't be able to engage in, in trade with Iran. Um, the impact of this, though, could be significant. I mean, this would make it seem as if the United States is, uh, is unilaterally abrogating the deal, because again, after a deal is negotiated, both sides have agreed to take certain steps, and here we would have Congress essentially preventing the, the executive branch from taking those steps to execute the deal. Um, that could have a range of effects. It could drive Iran back to enrichment. It could drive the European Union to express frustration that the U.S. is really insistent on a permanent sanctions regime as an end in itself rather than as a means to achieving a non-proliferation goal, and it could alienate our allies and undermine support for the sanctions regime. So Congress would want to take exactly those factors into consideration, uh, that, uh, that if Congress were to prevent the implementation of the agreement through these steps, that it could leave the U.S. isolated and leave few alternatives, really, for addressing the Iranian nuclear program. And then lastly, uh, Congress could simply disapprove the agreement. Uh, it could pass a joint resolution of disapproval. Um, and if that passed both houses, uh, both chambers, it could have the same effect essentially as if the Senate refused to provide advice and consent on a treaty. Um, now, 
likely that would have no impact because the president would almost certainly veto that kind of resolution. Congress could, of course, try to overturn the veto, and if it was successful, uh, that would have the same impact that we just mentioned. It would essentially present the United States as having unilaterally abrogated the agreement, um, which would have a range of negative consequences. So uh, those are the kind of things that Congress wants to consider, the potential isolation of the U.S. from its allies, the weakening of the sanctions regime, uh, and the fact that after sort of killing the diplomatic track, um, there'd be few remaining alternatives for um, for addressing Iran's nuclear program. It's also important to note that although num a number of Democrats have expressed some um, support for sanctions and some opposition to a deal, that when push comes to shove, it's entirely possible that some Democrats would not cast a, a veto override vote to kill what would be a signature accomplishment of a president from their own party. So it's possible that despite statements of support, uh, some people wouldn't necessarily cast the vote to, to, to disapprove the agreement. Um, and then we'll go into this uh, extra option of the authorization of the use of military force. Now, Congress could, of course, authorize force to punish Iranian noncompliance. Um, it could also authorize military assistance to Israel so that Israel could mount a, a unilateral strike. And in fact, there are two bills in the Senate um, that would do just that. It pro they propose providing Israel with the bunker buster bombs necessary to penetrate Iranian nuclear uh, facilities. Um, now, that could have one of could have a number of different impacts. It could, of course, intimidate Iran into complying. That doesn't seem so likely. I mean, Iran has been aware of the potential use of military force by the U.S. or Israel for a long time and has proceeded with its nuclear program nevertheless. Um, it could also present the United States as being somewhat belligerent uh, and making an effort to kill the deal and so could cause international support to wane. Um, the, among the things Congress would want to consider is that, of course, the current president doesn't seem to be inclined to use military force, at least not unless circumstances change dramatically. Um, and Congress is not likely to authorize the next president to use military force without knowing who that next president is going to be. Um, and then neither Congress nor the White House is really likely to provide assistance to Israel that would enable it to take unilateral action that the U.S. couldn't further influence. Um, so although the statement of political support for Israel is important, um, I, I, it doesn't seem likely that the United States would go down the road of providing Israel with additional material that it could use to mount a unilateral strike um, regardless of further U.S. views. So we will wrap up just by briefly talking about which of these options based on our discussion seem most likely. Um, and for the most part, it's the ones more or less in the middle. Um, taking no legislative action at all seems like a reasonably likely outcome just because of the divisions within Congress uh, between the parties and within the parties uh, and the difficulty of passing legislation, uh, particularly in, a, in an election year when the debate around an issue like the Iranian nuclear program might become increasingly polarized. Um, and then the two options that would involve either reinstating waived sanctions or imposing new sanctions. But again, that because of the consequences of, of uh, imposing sanctions uh, unilaterally, um, we think it's likely that, that would only, these would only be reasonable options if they included snapback provisions. So in other words, if Iran reneged on the deal, sanctions would be reimposed. And that way the U.S. Uh, gets to sort of deflect the blame for uh, the responsibility for requiring those sanctions onto Iran. Uh, that would enable the White House to implement the deal pretty much as negotiated, may cause businesses to hesitate to invest if they think sanctions might really kick in, but some of them might certainly start entering the Iranian market and enabling Iran to see some of the benefits of the deal itself. So both of those options, uh, uh, no legislative action at all, and then one of the two options that involved the imposition of new sanctions, both of them would enable the administration to implement an agreement um, providing sanctions relief under executive branch authority without any further congressional action. 
So that's what we think are the sort of range of options that Congress uh, could take um, and with some discussion of the impacts of, of each of them. So we welcome uh, your thoughts. Hopefully those of you who are involved uh, much more than we are in the day-to-day -day aspects of writing legislation and building support for it, if you have thoughts about uh, our own assessment of what's likely and less likely, we're happy to hear it. Um, and we're happy to hear any, uh, any questions or any feedback. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.